You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Covenant Church in Big Spring, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us online. To find more resources or to donate to this amazing ministry, please visit us at cccbigspring.org or text your amount to 84321. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God. Bibles while we're standing. It is our custom to stand for the opening reading of God's Word. I want you to find the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter. And while you're turning there, let me once again welcome our own site, well as our online audience. Thank you for tuning in and joining us for the 11 hour, 11 a.m. Uh, worship experience here at Cornerstone Covenant Church. We've been in this series, started it last week. A series entitled Kingdom Essentials. Our series topic centers around this thought, taking a journey back to the things that are vital. Last week, Pastor Corey had the responsibility as well as the privilege to launch our uh, series opener with the topic, Worship worship is an essential, uh, Kingdom Essential rather. And if you miss any part of that particular message, I would invite you to go to our Cornerstone Covenant Church YouTube channel, channel and tune in and watch that message because I believe it will be indeed a blessing to you. We are now in our second week of our Kingdom Essentials, and we're going to continue our journey back, amen, to the things that are vital. The Bible says in 2 Samuel, the 6th chapter, verse number 12 again 2nd Samuel 6 verse number 12 I'll be reading from the New King James Version your translation may be different from mine but I believe you'll be able to follow along if you've arrived to that portion of scripture I want you to signify by the saying of amen if you have not say hold on we're doing good you'll find these words recorded it says now it was told King David saying the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. What I want to do is I want to just take a few moments of your time today and we might share this together and I want to speak to you from the subject, His presence. Say that with me. His presence. One more time. His presence. I invite you to pray with me. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you for this opportunity to come and break the bread of life for, with, with your people. As you've gathered us in this place and even virtually, we pray that you would minister to each and every one of our hearts. Let your word go out and not return void, but let it go out and accomplish what it's sent out to do. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, let all God's people say amen. Amen. Please be seated. God bless you. Thank you, worship team. And thank you for being uh, in attendance uh, today and for those who are still in a season of uh, practicing, uh, perhaps they're quarantining, we want to thank you for joining us even online. What I want to do is I want to start in verse number one. Um, We'll cover a a, a few scriptures. Verse one opens up with this statement. Verse one, I'm still in 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel 
And the Bible says that there was 30,000 of them. How many were there? Notice David gathered together all the choice men. They are gathered together. In other words, David gathered together the best of the best. Anybody that's spent any time in the military knows that, it, that you have all kinds of little special branches uh, that distinguish this, distinguishes themselves from the general population uh, and are known as the best of the best. He gathered them together. Why is that significant? The Bible says in Psalms 133, verse 1, the A portion of that verse, or actually all of it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together, here it is, together in unity. Later on in that same chapter, verse 3 says, For there God commands the blessing. Why? God commands the blessing upon their unity. There's something to be said that when we come together and we are on the same sheet of music. It is something to be said when we come together and we are on the same, amen, place where God would have us to be. Why is that significant? Why is that important? One of the things that we have discovered as we uh, go through this process is that we can do a whole bunch of different things a whole bunch of different ways. One of the things that we illustrated yesterday at our men's gathering, and we've done this with our church staff as well, the importance of being on the same sheet of music. What we did uh, Saturday is we took two boards. One had one nail and the other board had multiple nails. And I told the men that was gathered, all of them get one hammer and they only get one hit. And the objective is, is to take the, uh, the piece of wood and nail it against the wall. You get one hit with one hammer. We discovered that if we hit the same nail over and over again, we're able to make more progress hitting the same thing rather than doing a multiplicity of things. The Bible says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We see that globally. We see that nationally. We see that at the state level. We see that even in our families. But it benefits us all, benefits us all when we can all hit the same nail. The Bible says that God commands the blessing upon their unity. David did not gather 30 members of his special forces. David did not gather 300 of his uh, rangers from his ranger battalion. David did not gather 300 or 3,000 of his infantry soldiers. But the Bible declares that David gathered 30,000 of his best soldiers. The best soldiers in his army have been gathered together. The question must be asked is, why did David gather so many men together? Why did David gather the choice men, the best men of his battalion, of his army? Well, because David viewed the Ark of the Covenant as something extremely important. That's why he gathered 30,000. That is to say, the Ark was something that was viewed as vital. And David and the people of God viewed the ark as something essential. Understand, the ark of the covenant was essential because it represented the very presence of God. I'm going to say it again. The ark of the covenant represented the very presence of God. And David arose, according to verse 2, and went with all the people where he was with him to a place called, here it is, Bele Judah, to bring from up there the ark of God. So notice in the text, David gathers himself and all of the people to take this journey to go to a place called Bele Judah for the purpose of taking up the ark. David retrieving the ark would be considered an important step toward providing a central place of worship back to Jerusalem for all of Israel. Now, for you who may not be familiar with the term ark, the ark literally means a box. It literally means a chest. 
It was three feet and nine inches long. It was three. It was two feet and three inches wide, and it was two feet and three inches high. Both the chest and the lid was made with wood overlaid with gold. In Hebrews 9 and 4 would teach us that there was three items that was located in the ark. The first one was, was the tablets of the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. That was actually in the ark. The second thing was the jar of manna. It would remind them that God knows how to give you a man provision even in a wilderness place. It was in the ark. But the third thing, which if you was here Wednesday night, this is covered in Numbers, the 17th chapter. Aaron's rod that miraculous, miraculously blooded, uh, budded rather, as confirmation of his leadership was also found in the ark. The Bible declares in verse number 3 and verse number 4 that David and all the people that was with him, they go up to this hill and they arrive at the house of Abinadab where the ark of God had been residing. He, he, I t said earlier that he had th uh, two sons, but actually he has three sons, two of which the passage talks about. He, he, he's, he, the Bible says he goes up this hill to a house of Abinadab. Abinadab, a man, has had the ark in this home for, according to 1 Samuel, uh, the seventh chapter, verses 1 and 2, he's had the ark in his house for 20 years. Don't forget that. It's been in his house for 20 years. How long has it been in his house? 20 years. It's been there 20 years. He has two sons that the passage is going to talk about. The first son is one by the name of Uzziah. Somebody say Uzziah. And the second son is one by the name of Ohio. Somebody say Ohio. Even though it's spelled A-H-I-O, it's still pronounced Ohio. And the text tells us that these two sons are the drivers of this new cart. It appears that Ohio is in the front of the ark and Uzziah is stationed at the rear of the cart right behind the ark of God. Then we get to verse 5 and verse 5 paints this beautiful uh, picture of this special occasion. The ark has been picked up. The ark has been secured. The ark at this time is now on the move back to Jerusalem. And King David has the team to break out the instruments according to the text. These instruments according to the Bible is made of fir wood. Now fir wood was considered a very useful product. It was, it was a, uh, the uh, fir wood was used for things like supply boards. Uh, it was also used for timber, used for making doorways. It was used uh, for beams, for roofing. It was used for planks to build ships. It was also, according to the text, obviously made for instruments. This wood was used for making instruments. Now that blew me away because in my mind, I just envisioned most instruments being metal. And I was thinking when I read the text, and we'll get to it here in a second, when you look at things like symbols uh, uh, and we look at things like uh, a trumpet, we just assume, at least in my mind, that they were metal. And then I went and did some biblical research, and you find out that, no, there was trumpets that were used that we commonly refer to as shofars that were made out of wood. Not all of them were made out of bone. But also even the symbols, even though in our drum cage they are all metal, but biblically they were started off as being wood, and some of them became clay. But they made this distinct sound. So David gives the cue to the band, and as they brought all kinds of types and, and kinds of instruments, they, 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 they probably wasn't as good as the CCC worship team, amen. Uh, they, they, they wanted, but, but they were doing the best they could with what they had, amen. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. The Bible says, and I want you to go here, the writer in Chronicles, the book of Chronicles, records that David participated as well. Notice, consider Chronicles uh, 13 and 8. 
First Chronicles 13 and 8 says, Then David and all of Israel played music before God with all of his might, with singing on harps, on string instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. This is what I want you to notice. First of all, David, King David, was participating in the worship experience. Listen to me. I don't think we should ever get so high sedity that we can't participate in worship. We should never develop the attitude is that worship is for everybody else. David was one who was participating in the act of worship. Not only did he participate with the playing of music, but the Bible says that he did it also with singing. So they had singing as well as playing going on. Now it appears that when you study this text, we see that this live praise and worship service is actually mobile. This, this praise and worship service is actually a praise fest that is on the move. I, I wonder if you, you can see it. It's almost like a parade. They're praising God as they're going down the road. They're praising God as they're going down the street. I, I wonder if you can see it that all of a sudden David looks over at the band and say, now hit the right note. And, and David is saying, okay, let's get the tambourines. Let's, let's get the cymbals. Let, let's, let's get the trumpet playing. And, and now all of a sudden they begin to sing a song. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God. See, y'all could have been in the group as well. I don't know what song they were singing, but they, were been, they began to break out in song as a parade began to move. And the Word of God shares with us in verse 6 that the people of God arrive, this parade, this processional, now arrives at a place referred to in the text as Nacon threshing floor. Now, what is significant about this is that when you study the term threshing floor, it has some biblical significance. First of all, threshing floor is seen or viewed physically. But it's not just viewed physically in Scripture. It is also viewed symbolically. And then it is viewed as a place of separation. And I'll explain uh, all of these here in a second. The first one is physical. Somebody say physical. The Bible says that they now, this parade, this processional has moved to a place of called Nacon's threshing floor. Now, Nacon, his name literally means prepared. We don't know much about him in the text. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information about Nacon, but it tells us two things. First of all, we know what his name means. It means prepared. But it also mean, it shows us that he was the owner of this threshing floor. So those are the things that we know about him. The Bible lets us know that they come to this place called the threshing floor. Now, many of you may not even know what a threshing floor is, but a threshing floor was this wide, large, smooth surface area. I'm going to say it again. It was large, it was wide, and it was a smooth area. And the purpose of it, it was the purpose of threshing wheat. Now, what they would do is that they would take the stalk from grain and they would lay it on this thing called the threshing floor. And then they would allow livestock to walk and trample. Matter of fact, the word threshing literally means to trample out. So they would lay the stalk down on this surface and livestock would come around and they would constantly walk over and over this particular wheat or this grain. The purpose is to do 
two things. First of all, it was prepare it for flying. I'll explain that here in a second. The first purpose was to trample it so that it might be separated. Because what they were trying to do is they was trying to take, here, don't miss this, to separate the cereal of the wheat, which was the edible portion, and separate it from the chaff, which was the unedible part of the wheat. So when the animal trampled over it, all of a sudden the weight of trampling over it, it would cause the chaff to shift from the cereal. The cereal was the portion that could be consumed and the chaff was the part that could be thrown away. But remember, it is all just laying there even though it's been separated. So they would come with these particular uh, tools that look sort of like rakes and they would take it and toss it in the air. When the wind was blowing, the wind would blow and separate the chaff because it was lighter from the stalk or from the wheat of the cereal of the wheat. It was separating the fall. It was the job, if you studied, amen, Ruth, you noticed if you study or read the book of Ruth, you noticed that they stayed at the threshing floor all night. Why? Because the things that fell to the ground was still very valuable. So they would plant a guard there to watch over their, uh, their products. So the Bible says that they come to this place called the threshing floor. This tool was used to toss it up in the air and it would separate the stalk from the chaff or the cereal from the chaff. This was called sifting wheat. Now we know a little bit about this. Jesus spoke about this when he was teaching Peter and the disciples about Satan's attack. Remember Luke 22 and 31? Jesus talking to his disciples, he distinctly tells Peter, he says, Satan has desired, here it is, to sift you as wheat. In other words, they understood the process of sifting. Jesus, in using this terminology, was trying to tell them about the methodology of Satan's attack. The enemy is not satisfied with just tossing your life up, but he first wants to come in and trample all over your life. Anybody been there? He comes in and he tramples all over your life, and right when you think it can't get any worse, he comes in and takes what's left of you, what's broken of you, what's been separated from you. He then, I feel like preaching now, he then takes it and tosses it in the air, and then the wind of life comes through and blows it. And all of a sudden, things that should be connected are separated. And the things that should be, amen, separated are still connected. And so that's what Jesus was teaching when he taught his disciples about sifting wheat. This is the physical part of this uh, thre uh, threshing floor. But it also was symbolic of judgment. We don't have time to cover this. But the threshing floor is seen as a symbol of judgment according to Hosea 13 and 3. You can study that at your leisure. But also in Jeremiah 51 and 33. But it was also not only viewed as a physical place, not only was it viewed as a symbolic place of judgment, but it was also viewed as a separating place. John the Baptist uses the imagery of the threshing floor to describe the coming of Jesus. He declared Jesus would separate the true believers from the false. He taught that the true followers of Christ would be gathered into the kingdom of God just as grain is gathered into the barn. And while those who reject Christ will be burned up with unquenchable fire, just as worthless as chaff is also burned up. That's Matthew 3, verse number 12. So understand, the people of God now arrives in this procession. they end this parade. They're praising God. They're worshiping. And the Bible says the people arrived at this place referred to as Nacon's threshing floor. And when they arrived at this place, it appears that the terrain is a little rocky. And as such, the ox, amen, as they were pulling this new cart, 
stumbled. And sometimes that happens. It, it, it stumbles. So let, let's be honest. We, we don't actually anticipate a stumble. Anybody really anticipate a stumble? For the most part, that's what makes stumbles such a surprise. We didn't see it coming. Can I get a witness? Don't leave a brother out there hanging by himself. I'm not the only one that's caught by surprise on a stumble. But, but, but we could surmise as, as this cart moves from one surface to the other, from a rough terrain to a smooth surface, that that's where the tumble took place. And we can understand that. It, it goes from a rough place to now bumps up to this smooth surface. All of a sudden, we, we can envision in our mind the possibility of that happening. The Bible doesn't give us great details, but there's some other things that we can surmise from the given text. The stumble comes as a surprise. The stumble comes quick. The stumble comes unforeseen. The stumble comes as it loses its balance. But the text says that the stumble occurs at the threshing floor on a smooth surface place where it's not expected. I'm going to say it again. It happens allegedly on a smooth surface at a place where it's not expected. I'm going to say it one more time. A smooth surface where it is not expected. Perhaps that's why it was a surprise. Have you ever had life present a stumbling situation at a time when everything around you is going smooth? When you can anticipate, listen, there's things you can anticipate. When things are already a little shaky, you can anticipate it. When everything is a little rocky, you can anticipate it. When things are already a little rough, you can anticipate it. But what do you do when everything's supposed to be smooth sailing and bam, all of a sudden there's a stumble. There's somebody sitting here this morning saying, I was smooth sailing, but I didn't see that coming. I, I was doing good in my marriage, and I didn't expect a divorce. I, I didn't think my kid would ever get on drugs because we were doing everything. It was smooth sailing. I never thought they would fire me. I gave them 22 good years, but all of a sudden, they're smooth sailing. It, there's, there's a time that, that a stumble happens, and it catches us by surprise. But it creates also an opportunity for a slip. This surprise creates an opportunity for a blunder. This surprise creates an opportunity for a mistake. I dare submit to you, it creates an opportunity for a sin. When the oxen stumble, this affects the new cart. And Uzziah puts out his hand, according to the scripture, and he takes a hold of the ark. Then something peculiar happens. Something strange takes place. Something, something shocking is revealed. The Bible says in verse 7, it declares that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzziah. Did you see that, verse 7? The Bible declares that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzziah. If that, if that wasn't enough, it goes on to say that not only was the Lord was angry, but the Lord, here it is, but God struck Uzziah for his error. In other words, here it is, Uzziah died beside the ark. Remember, the ark represents the presence of God. What do you do when people die in God's presence? He died. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I, I have some questions. How could this happen? How does it happen to a good man appears? It appears to be a man that's doing good things. How does this happen to a man doing a good thing? How does this happen to a man that seems like he's doing a respectable thing? How does this happen to a man that seems like he's doing an honorable thing? That, so that, that brings us to a question. How did we get here? I dare you to look at your neighbor. Don't touch him because we're still battling COVID. But look at him and say, how did we get here? Just, just look at him. Don't be afraid. If you look him in the forehead, they'll never know the difference. Just look at him and say, how did we get here? How did we get here? We went from picking up the ark to a stumble to a death. 
How did we get here? We went from a praise break to a stumble to a death. How did we get here? We went from celebrating to stumbling to now planning a funeral. How did we get here? Or is that the problem? It wasn't picking up the ark that was the problem. It wasn't the praise break that was the problem. But listen, perhaps it was the stumble. No, I humbly submit to you that it wasn't even the stumble. I humbly submit to every person here online and every person that is in, on site. I humbly submit to you that the stumble might have revealed the issue, but the stumble was not the cause of the issue. Might I have your attention just for a few moments? All the stumble did was reveal the disorder that was among David and his leadership. David becomes angry according to verse 8 and the reason given is because David is angry at the Lord's outbreak against Uzziah. But wait a minute, is God unreasonable? Wait a minute, is God unjust? Wait a minute, is God unrighteous? Or is David really just more disappointed in himself and in his own disobedience? Someone here this morning has asked the question, what disobedience? What, where is the disobedience, Pastor Willard? I'm so glad you asked. Understand, when the instruction was given, David knew the expectations that Lord, the Lord had concerning the moving of the ark. According to both Exodus and Numbers, God tells them how and who was to transport this ark. Here it is. How was the ark to be transported? Well, according to Exodus, you don't have to turn there, but just write it down for your personal note-taking. Exodus 25, verses 12 through 15 I told you earlier that the ark, both the chest and the lid, were made of wood overlaid with gold. But in addition to that, gold, uh, uh, God told them, rather, to build the ark and to fashion it with four gold rings and place them on the corners. Two were to be on one side and two were to be on the other side. Then some of the poles, here it is, then make some poles of arcade acacia wood amen and then overlay them with gold then place the poles in the golden rings in order that the ark may be carried so God tells them how to transport this ark but then in numbers 4 and 17 or uh, 15 rather numbers 4 and 15 you can write that down he tells them who was to transport the ark God has already told them that the Levites are to carry the ark of God on their shoulders using the poles that were overlaid with gold. God also warned them that anyone that touched the ark was to die. Stay with me here. God tells them how it's to be carted. He tells them how it's to be transported. He tells them who are to transport it. And he warns them that if anybody touched it, they would die. Do you see it? If there's a right way to do it, there's a wrong way to do it. If there's a wrong way to do it, there's a... Oh, y'all tracking this morning. Uzziah died because leadership failed to do it God's way. I'm going to say it again. Uzziah died in the presence of God because leadership failed to do it God's way. And Uzziah put his hand out to offer his assistance and it cost him his life. Now, remember, the ark had been in the father uh, here at Abinadab's house, the father of Abinadab's house, for several years. Uh, matter of fact, I told you earlier that it had been there for 20 years. Some scholars believe that the young man here, Uzziah, died perhaps because he became so familiar with the presence of the ark. 
that might be that, that they, they're suggesting that because the ark had been in the house for 20 years, there was a loss of respect. There was a loss of honor. There was a loss of reverence. Because he was so familiar with the ark, he became so familiar with it that, that you've heard it's been said, familiarity breeds contentment. And because he was so familiar, when the ox began to stumble and the cart shifted and the ark began to fall, he reached out his hand to do a good thing because he was so familiar with the protocol of the ark but not the standard of God and sometimes that happens and this brings me to my first point lessons that David King David and his leadership taught us is point number one here it is don't miss this sometime we put forth the hand of service but we do not put forth the heart of obedience Sometimes we're just so anxious to serve that we forget that obedience is just as important as the service we offer to God. Understand, service must follow obedience, and obedience must be accommodating service. If we attempt to serve God without obeying God, we set up ourselves and others for failure. Is this happening to us? Is this happening to the church of 2020? Do we have sincere people that just want to serve? Do we have just sincere people that want to assist? Do we have sincere people that just want to help, but they are spiritually dropping dead because we are not doing it God's way? And the leadership is culpable in their demise because like David, we are not speaking up and reminding people of God's expectations, God's word, and God's standard. See, this happens when we attempt to attach the presence of God to our own personal agendas. We got this new card. Yeah, we do. We, we got this new car. We got this new thing. We, we got this new technology. We got this new luxury item. We got, and it's fancy too. And God must be pleased with our efforts. But new stuff cannot cover up our ignorance. New stuff cannot cover up our neglect. New stuff cannot cover up our disobedience with God. Look at your name and say, we got to get it right. We, we got to get it right. The Bible says that David becomes afraid of the Lord that day. Notice that, that day. Somebody say that day. Yeah, there's something happened that this day David becomes fearful of the Lord. And actually, I would suggest to you that this is a good thing for David. David has had this situation happen, and now he has become fearful, and it is a good thing. You say, Pastor Willie, why is it a good thing? Well, first of all, the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. That's Proverbs 9 and 10. So that's a good thing that he is now, amen, fearful of the Lord, because wisdom can be birthed out of that experience. But also to fear the Lord is to take him seriously. See, you don't get busy with God until you start taking God seriously. When you think you can just command God at will and do what you want to and ignore his commands and ignore his will. Amen. You're liable to do anything you want to do anytime you want to do it with anybody you want to do it with. But when you start to fear the Lord and you realize that God can step in anytime, anywhere, in any moment then you start to change. Come on, talk to me somebody. It'll shift your thinking. It'll shift your behavior. It'll cause you to look at this thing totally different. But David becomes so fearful that David decides that he's not wanting the ark to accompany him back to Jerusalem. David said, mm-mm, mm-mm. You ever done that? Mm-mm, mm-mm. You, you want something? Mm-mm. Let it be something you don't want. Talk to me, somebody. Let it be that vegetable somebody wants to put on, my, on your plate. You know, Bella used to do that to me when I, let, I, unless I digress, let me do this real quick. Uh, when me and Bella got together, we've been together a long time, long time, long time, long time. 29 years just this past August. And I remember when we first got together, I would call from Fort Carson and say, hey, babe, I'm coming through. Hey, man, give me some lunch. She knew what the lunch was. I wanted some Velveeta macaroni and cheese. 
amen, and some wings from the Kentucky Fried Chicken place. Just they, Remember those little honey barbecue wings? She would have them set up for me. And then I would come over there and I'd say, okay, I ain't got but a few minutes, so go ahead and grab that and I'll come in. And we're gonna, I'm going to eat and then I'm going to go back to work. And so sometime I come in, she had vegetables on my plate. And I say, that wasn't the list I sent you. Talk to me, somebody. I like that. Ain't that ain't what I asked you? That that, that ain't what I asked you to get. And so and so later on, we 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 you know got married and and we, you know in, at Falcon Point, a little apartment there in Fort Carson, and and she would she, we cook and hamburger helper and biscuits and and all of a sudden I look up and there'd be some squash or something on my plate and I say, hey, I'm a soldier. What you doing putting these vegetables on here? Well, we don't eat fresh fruit or vegetables. You know what I'm saying? We don't want none of that. And so all of a sudden we've been married a few years and all of a sudden we're now in Europe and all of a sudden I said, now look, when you've been told and you married and you 20 some years old, you're like, look, now this is an issue. Because it ain't like you know you don't know what I don't like and I don't want this and so now you're messing with me. You know what I'm saying? And so now, you know, you've been married about 15 years. All of a sudden, they try it again because women will do that on you. You know, they'll let you dry, and then all of a sudden, it'll pop up on you again. You know what I'm saying? You're like, hey, now, didn't I think, what, what, am I confused? Man? Oh, maybe I'm trying to be an example to the kids. I don't know, but, but she, she put them back on there. But I can tell you, make a long story short, here I am, been married 29 years. She just put vegetables on my plate and said, hey, eat them. And, 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 and you know what I do? Uh, uh, I eat them because she said, <laughs> I've been, she's she looking at me like, I've been to the doctor with you. I've been with you when you got your blood drawn. I know your sugar reading. I know your cholesterol reading. You're going to eat these vegetables today. You, <laughs> but back then, I could say no. You know what I'm saying? But, but that, and, that's, and I said all of that to say that's what David is saying. David is saying no. You ain't bringing the ark back with us today. David don't want to have anything to do with the ark. Why? Perhaps David, after the death of Uzziah, he views the presence of God as a burden rather than a blessing what do you do when you're looking at the presence of God no longer as a blessing but a burden but David flees and according to verse 10 and through 12 he tells us that David, the text tells us that David moves the ark of God into the house of Obed-Edom the Bible says that the ark remains in Obed-Edom's house for three months the ark remains in Obed-Edom's house for approximately 12 weeks. The, the ark of God remains in Obed-Edom's house for approximately 90 days. And the text confirms that the blessing of the Lord was upon his house. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, now, I know he blessed him because obviously if you study his life, you realize that he was a faithful man. Obed-Edom was a good steward of what God gave him. That's why this was a good place for the ark to be. So he was faithful. He was a good steward. But also God blessed him, amen, obviously to stay at home. He didn't have to go to work because the man had eight sons. So I know how you have work. You'll get that on the way to the car. I, I, he, he had eight sons, but, but in paying homage to God, he names all of his sons in honor of who God was in his life. The Bible says that the word gets back to David, gets back to King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. David hears word, and here brings my second point. The lesson that King David and his leadership teaches us is this, point number two, and that is the presence of the Lord is absolutely essential. It is my hope that every person that is listening to this message will start to view the presence of the Lord as absolutely essential because I want to humbly submit to you that God knows how to bless, but God also knows how to get your attention. 
See, obviously the fear of transporting the ark dissipates over time. And David begins to view the ark, the presence of God, as a blessing rather than a curse. I suspect someone here this morning, both on site and online, is asking the question because you, you, you're saying, how do I get that point because you've been mad at God? I humbly submit that there's somebody sitting here saying, I've been disappointed at God. There's somebody else that's sitting here saying, yes, I've been frustrated with God. And my prayer for you, dear heart, my, my, my prayer for you, dear friend, is, is that you would come to your senses today and begin, like David, to see the presence of the Lord as absolutely essential. Here in the main text, in verse 12 is our main text, in the B portion of that verse, the Bible says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. Here it is, with gladness. Here's my third point. Lessons that David, King David and his leadership taught us. Point three is simply this. Sometimes all we need is an attitude adjustment. Look at your neighbor and say, mm-hmm. No, no, don't, don't say it. Just look at it and say, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know you sitting up, you ought to look at your kids and say, mm-hmm. That's what that spanking was about last night. Talk to me, somebody. Yeah, mm-hmm. Some of you, yeah, that was that confrontation we had the other day. Remember I checked you on that? Mm-hmm. Every now and then, we just need a good old attitude adjustment. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what David specifically goes through, but from the time of being fearful to now putting on gladness as he comes back to pick up the ark of God with gladness, we know that there's been some type of attitude adjustment. Adjustment. King David's fear has been replaced with gladness. And it appears that King David has shifted his perspective. Not only has he shifted his perspective, but David has changed his attitude. Pastor Willie, what do you mean by that? Well, what is a perspective? It is, it is, the perspective is simply defined as a particular attitude toward or, why, or the way in which we regard something. It, in other words, real simply, it's our point of view. It's the way we look at something. One can shift their perspective about God when we can shift our focus from what God did to why he did it. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Sometimes you can have a good old shift in perspective as it relates to your view with God is by simply asking God. Because sometimes we, we, we ask this, and I've done this. We simply ask God, amen, we focus on what God did. But we never go and say, God, why did you do that to me? Why did you allow me to go through that? Why? We just focus on what God did and what he did it and, and where he did it. But we need to be bold enough to ask God, why did this? happened to me but not only did you see a shift in his perspective you've seen a change in his attitude might I have a second to share that with you the Bible says that he comes to pick up the ark here it is from Obed Edom's house to the city and brings it to the city of David with gladness how did he bring it with gladness how did he bring it with gladness the word gladness there is the Hebrew word sahab and it is this simple word that means joy. It means rejoicing. But the word here, joy, includes both a feeling of good cheer and also a vibrant happiness. This type of joy expresses itself in God's goodness. In other words, when you're in a position and you see the goodness of God, it brings a joy on you. In other words, David has lived through this experience where he was broken. He 
was fearful. He was mad. He was angry with God. But something has shifted in his perspective. Something has shifted in his attitude. And now he's looking at God. And now he's delighting over the fact that he has a relationship with God. And now he goes back to pick up the ark with gladness. Here it is. So it was, here it is. Verse 13 is our key in our final scripture. He says, so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? So it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord. I'm going to throw it one more time. First time you duck. I'm going to say it again. So it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord. Here's my final lesson. And that is King David and his leadership taught us that if you're going to get it right, you got to do it right. In the text, notice David put the Levites back in place. Not a new cart, not an old cart for that matter, but David re-implements the original plan of God. God says, I want it done this way. I want you to carry it this way, and this is who I want to carry it. I don't want it on no cart. I don't want it on a new cart. I don't want it on a big cart. I don't want it on a large cart. I don't want it on that little cart. I don't want it on any cart. I designed my ark to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, and that's how I want it done. I wish somebody would help me preach right about here because I believe that if we're going to do it God's way, if we're going to get it right, we're going to have to do it God's way. Bump your name. I know it's COVID, but bump your name and say, wake up. And this is the way God expects you to do it. You need to understand that we're going to have to do it God's way. Why is that important? Here a man is gone. Yes, he's dead. Uzziah is gone. The new cart is gone. Disobedience is gone. Why? Because David has made up his mind that he's going to put the right people back in the place that they were supposed to do and sometimes men make the mistake that we think we can have overriding authority over God's plan and over God's agenda bump your name and say sometimes we get it wrong but if you get it wrong and it starts listen the best thing that God can ever do to you when you start messing up is to correct you correctly it's one thing to drop overnight but it's a bad thing to gradually drop over a period of time because all of a sudden you can find yourself in the worst place and you're asking yourself how in the world did we get here it seemed like I was here yesterday and now I find myself that I wish I was to have some real people that would say amen up in here saying I didn't just come here for fellowship I came to get some answers this morning and say God I need you to help me with me so David does something peculiar again David David puts the Levites back in place and now they bore the ark up on their shoulders and as they bear the ark on their shoulders there's two lines of thoughts here because the bible says after they had went they left abinadab's house and uh, i'm sorry obed edom's house that had been there for 90 days and he blessed his house as they're leaving this house the bible says that they left and went six paces one two three four five six paces and the bible says he David said, hey, let's have a sacrifice. Now, when David has this sacrifice, you need to understand, he does this to show and express his dedication and appreciation. David had the Levites take six paces, and then they would sacrifice oxen and the fatted sheep. Oxen were very useful, and as such, they were valuable and expensive. Notice the sheep were fatted sheep. They just weren't any type of sheep. They were fatted sheep. No doubt they had been well tended to. And again, they were valuable and they were expensive. 
Both David spared, David spared no expense in expressing his appreciation and a dedication unto the Lord. In other words, David was willing to offer God an extravagant gift. Now, as David and the group and the band are leaving, and they're leaving Obed-Edom's house, the Bible says that they leave and they go six places, paces, one, two, three, four, five, six, six paces. And there they began to offer this sacrifice of oxen and this fatted sheep. That's one line of thought. And then after that sacrifice, they went on to the city of David. But some scholars don't believe that it was that simple. They believe that as David is leaving Obed-Edom's house and he goes one, two, three, four, five. He offers a sacrifice unto the Lord and then goes one, two, three, four, five. And he offers another one unto the Lord. Now, if that's the case, it took them a long time to get home. But understand, they're not in a hurry to get home. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is with them. And sometimes I think we are too quick to just try to get it over with. But we need to remind ourselves when we come to the house, is it time yet? I still got beans on. I still got my roast in the oven. Then you should have just stayed home. We come to give God our best praise. We come to worship Him. We come to praise Him. We come to thank Him for the roast at home. We come to thank Him for the beans that's on the table. Talk to me, somebody. So, 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 he, so the Bible says, here it is, uh, the Bible says in verse 14, Then David danced before the Lord with some of his might, with most of his might. The Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, notice he says with all of his might. If you know anything about David, David was one that would dance. David was one that would sing. David was one that would write music. And certainly David was one that would play an instrument. But notice in the text, the Bible says that he has done it with all of his might. David did this with energy. David did it with passion, David did it with power, and David did it with effort. Listen, I just want to tell you in my closing that if you're going to do anything for God, you ought to do it for all, with all of your might. If you're going to sing, you ought to do it with all of your might. If you're going to play an instrument, you ought to do it with all of your might. If you're going to preach the word, you ought to do it like it's your last time, and you ought to do it with all of your might. You ought to do it, you ought to do it. If you're going to teach the word, you ought to do it with all of your might. If you're going to usher, if you're going to be a security, if you're going to be working in greeters, you ought to do it with all of your might. Why? Because God don't deserve nothing but the best. So David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord shouting and singing with the sound of the trumpet. What can we conclude in this? David has come to realize that the presence of the Lord is essential. God's presence is essential. I have a I, I want to remind you something. Sometimes we put forth the hand of service and we don't put forth the heart of obedience. And we got to correct that. For somebody else sitting here, you need to view personally the presence of the Lord is absolutely essential. For somebody else, it's simply a question of having your own personal attitude adjustment. And for somebody else, if you're going to get it right, you're going to have to do it right. That's how you get back on track, by doing it the right way. My question to you, though, for you here and for you who are listening online, listen to me. Have you left the presence of God due to your anger? 
when you strip it down to its core, like David, you didn't like the outcome, so you became angry. Are you still angry? Have you fled the presence of God due to your anger? Have you fled the plan due to your disobedience? Sometimes we leave the plan that God has for our life. We leave it out of disobedience for whatever reason. Have you seen your team? Have you seen your children? Have you seen your spouse, your friends die spiritually due to their error but your neglect? See, Uzziah, when he touched that, that was an error. The Bible says he was struck because of his error. But when you study the text, you realize it wasn't that his touching was an error. David's leadership was culpable in his demise because leadership should have said, wait a minute, before we move out, there's going to be some things that are going to happen. And remember, we're carrying the very presence of God. So don't touch the ark. They had already been told. Matter of fact, some scholars says even though we mention Abinadab's house, scholars don't know if Abinadab was actually living at this time. Because my mind goes back to this son dying in the presence of God. And I wonder, where was his father? Had his father taught him to reverence, honor, and respect God? Had his brothers... He had three brothers, two of which is talked about in his text. He has another brother called Eleazar, who's actually, the Bible said, was consecrated to watch over the ark. That's in 1 Samuel, the 7th chapter, verses 1 and 2, along with his father, Abinadab. The truth is, I don't know how we got here, but I do know the way out. And that's to humble ourselves and say, God, we need you. We messed up, we tore it up, we blew it up, and others are suffering because of it. And we're not just sorry. We're not just apologizing, but we're repenting. Don't think God is gonna just continue to ignore, ignore error. The love of Christ is not a license to sin. The love of Christ is an opportunity and a window to repent. That's all it is. And sometimes we can so abuse the love of God. And Paul warned us of this in Romans when he says, Shall a man continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. This is a wake-up call for somebody that God has already told you internally to turn He's told you, stop. We usually want remorse and help and restoration when we've blown up our lives and the lives of other people. And God says, I was trying to keep you from the collateral damage. Because we don't know how long it's going to be before your daughter is restored. We don't know how long it's going to be before your son is able to recover. Because, see, we look at the story and we see Uzziah. Uzziah, he dies, but the Bible don't tell us the impact of what that had on his brother. They both was in service together. They both was moving the cart together. One was in the front, one was in the back. I don't know about you, but to be working on a project and my brother died. 
So what if it's not physical death, but just spiritual death? Do we still love them enough to mourn them, but also pray for them? God wants us to know that his presence has to be absolutely essential. The last thing I want to tell you before we pray, David Life teaches us that we can go back to the presence. Remember, David fled from the presence, left the ark in Obed-Edom's house, and goes back to the city of David. He gets word that God had blessed Obed-Edom, and he goes back. Here it is. See the symbolism. He goes back to the presence of God. And he goes back with gladness. God is sending somebody here this morning. Somebody's got, God's got somebody connected online so that you can go back to him. The significance of that is that when he goes back and picks up and re-encounters the presence of God, David didn't leave it there in the vicinity of Obed-Edom. He took the very presence of God back home with him. Listen to me, church. Church is not just about fellowship, and it is not about just worship, and it is not just about us coming together for prayer, which is all that is important. It is to come so God may make a mark on all of our lives that cannot be erased. So now when we have that encounter of transformation, because the greatest compliment you can give the gospel is change. When God is now convinced us, that's what he told Peter. He says, Peter, I prayed for you. Remember this passage I referred to earlier? Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. He says, but I prayed for you that your faith fails not. And then he says this, and when thou has been converted, go back and strengthen your brother. The word converted there literally means convinced. In other words, when I change your mind, then go back and change the minds of other people. So when we come to a place like this, it is transformative. But it shouldn't stay here. The transformative power of God should be seen in our marriages. It should be seen in our parenting. It should be seen, here it is, in our connection with other people. Your supervisor, your bosses, you, your employees, they should see the impact that God has because your Sunday morning meeting with him. His presence. David goes, picks up the very presence of God, and he takes it back to his home. Are you taking him home with you? Or are you going to leave him in the same seat and then come meet with him again? God doesn't want you to just come here, but he wants you to take the very presence that you've encountered and take it back home with you and let it be emulated in your behavior in the marketplace, in the workplace, in all the other places you find yourself. That's what Jesus meant when he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then they will turn around and glorify your Father in heaven. Every head's bowed. Before you stand, I want you to ask this question of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what are you trying to teach me today? What are you speaking to me specifically? As I was sharing with him at the 9 o'clock service about this story that probably many of you have heard about this young man that really wanted to be successful. 
And from a distance, he had been able to observe and monitor the life of this guru. And he had a chance to get audience with this guru. And he comes to him and he says, I just want to know, what will it take for me to be successful? Because I want to be successful like you. He says, you want to be successful like me? He says, I want to be successful like you. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to meet me on the beach tomorrow at 4 a.m. The young man thought about it, but he thought, okay, I'm in step one. I want to be successful. So he meets him at the beach at 4 o'clock in the morning. He gets there, and the guru says, now, what I want you to do is I want you to go out into the ocean. And he says, now, wait a minute. I told you that I want to be successful like you. I didn't come out here at 4 o'clock in the morning to get swimming lessons. But nevertheless, still wanting to follow the leadership of the leader, he goes out into the ocean. And the guru accompanies him, and he goes out with him. And then the guru takes him by the nap of the neck and he takes him, he plunges his head under the water and he holds him there until he almost loses consciousness. And then he raises him up and he says, what do you want? He says, all I want to do is just breathe. He says, if you want success like your next breath, you will be successful. Here it is. When we pursue God as if he's our next breath, we will be in the healthiest place we need to be. God should not be a spare tire that we keep in the back of our car and when we have a blowout, we pull him out, strap him, and he helps us get to where we want to and then pull him out and stick him in the back and say, God, I got this now. But God needs to be the driver of our lives. Our closing prayer is about if we're going to get it right, we're going to have to do it right. And that means we got to put God back in charge. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct our path. Might I pray with you? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, as we bring this particular worship experience to its conclusion, Lord, I trust that there's somebody in this room that needs to know you in the pardon of their sins. That they have heard the gospel, that they believe the gospel, they received it into their heart, they've repented of their sin, and they've confessed Jesus Christ with their mouth. And now they're putting themselves in a position to identify with you through water baptism. Lord, I pray that you would help them point out, be pointed out so that we might disciple and pray and encourage them. But Lord, there's a massive amount of people that are in this room and online that just need to get it right. And so, Lord, we need you to speak to our hearts again. The enemy has so clouded our ear that we feel like you're not even speaking to us. So, Lord, I'm praying that you would unclog every ear. For Jesus says, my sheep knoweth my voice, but a stranger they will not follow. And, Lord, we're in a season where we're hearing strange voices. And so, Lord, we need to hear your voice, and we need it to be clear. So, Father, my prayer is that you would unplug the ear of every person here and every person that is connected online, that they might hear from you directly about what the next move is for their lives. Somebody says, Lord, I've made a mess and I don't even know how to get out of it. But Lord, I need you to step in and help me. Guide me, take me by the hand and walk me through this process. Lord, I'm praying right now for every person here in the name of Jesus. Cover us now. Strengthen us. Take this word, hide it in our heart that we might not ever sin against thee, but bring it back to our remembrance at that point in time where we need it the most. Not just for our own personal edification, but that we may use it to advance the cause of Christ right here starting in our own community and even perhaps even in our own homes. It's in Jesus' name.